The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. So this is where the bloodshed starts. This is where it all begins. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you know your Bible, you'll start seeing a lot of different things come full circle because there's a real culmination taking place here. From the very beginning when man fell in the Garden of Eden and God makes that proclamation that one day the seed of the woman is going to come. Someone from the line of Eve is going to come. He's going to be bruised by the serpent, but he's going to crush the serpent's head. And now here we are at this point in the text seeing the culmination of this history begin to come about. And it all comes full circle. Where the first man fell and turned from God in a garden, the God-man will fall to his knees and turn to God in a garden. Where the first man's fall brought us thorns, the God-man will wear a crown of them to deliver us. The first man was naked and unashamed until his fall, but his fall brought great shame and a need for a covering, and yet the God-man will be stripped of his clothes, stripped naked, and bear the shame of the world to deliver us. The first man rebelled against God when he ate from a tree that the Bible says was, was pleasant and looked good. It was to be desired, and the God-man is going to be crucified and hung on a brutal, torturous tree to deliver us. And where the first man's fall brought anguish, frustration, even the sweat of the brow, the word says, the God-man is going to sweat blood from his brow. As this process begins, this thing that we refer to as the passion of Christ, this is where it all starts. This is where the blood begins to fall. But the first bloodshed is not from a punch. It's not from a cut. It's not from a stab. It is not from the crown of thorns. The first blood that Jesus spills as he begins this redemptive work for us, is because of dread. It's because of a knowing, genuine dread. He is fully God, but he is fully man, and he knows exactly everything that's about to happen. And there is genuine dread. He is going to hurt like no one has ever hurt before. He's going to be punished and beaten like no one has ever been punished and beaten before. And more than anything, he's going to experience guilt and sin that he has never experienced before. Not just some, but all of it upon his shoulders. And there's going to be some form of fellowship that's going to be fractured between him and his father as his father pours his wrath out on the shoulders of the son. It's going to be a difficult thing. It's going to be the hardest 24-hour period that any human has ever or will ever or could ever experience. And Jesus knows this, and this is where the blood comes from. The first drops of blood he sheds is just from pure dread and agony, knowing what's to come. But here we see that he comes to God with it. And I think it's worth stopping and just pausing for just a minute and thinking about this. When we are under incredible agony or anxiety or fear or suffering, when we're going through something that's really, really heavy, how do we tend to react? For some of us, suffering and difficulty becomes um, opportunity to increase freedoms. We, We might eat too much comfort food. We might drink or take some sort of drug to deaden pain. 
We might hole up in a bedroom to try to hide from the world. We might watch movies all day to shut everything out. We might let responsibilities lax because we need a break. We're going through a hard time. We might even allow ourselves to become grumpy or angry or lash out at people that we even love that are near us. And we would expect that they're just going to understand what's going on because, hey, we're under some heavy stuff. And Jesus does none of that. He does none of that. At no point does he seek to lessen any of the burden that he's taking. And instead, he carries all of this to his father and he prays. The reaction of Jesus under this sort of burden is to pray. And I think sometimes we look at prayer as if it's like this second class action in dealing with stuff. Like we'll even say things, though our intentions are right. Hey, you're going through something, man. Can I help you? No, just pray. Like that's all you can do as if it's some small menial task. But this is what Jesus ran to. So it's important that we understand this. If, if the Bible is the primary way by which God speaks to us, prayer is the primary way that we speak to God. And it becomes relational. This is a relational aspect here. It's about building relationship with him. Because think about it, prayer has to be that way. It can't be about relay of information because God already knows everything. We bring nothing new to the table that God wasn't aware about, aware of in prayer, right? I mean, like we don't come to prayer and go, okay, God, I know you've been busy with a lot of stuff, but I need to fill you in because some stuff's going down and I need help. Like that's not how it works. So, so the purpose of prayer can't just be for the relay of information, but it's about the actual relationship. In prayer, we're drawing near to him. God becomes real, not philosophical, not something in a book, but a person that we are relating to and talking to in a real and powerful way in that very moment. And listen, prayer works. I mean, first of all, every prayer is answered. Every prayer, despite what Garth Brooks saying, every prayer is answered. It's always answered. It's either yes, no, or maybe later. Yes, no, or not now. That's usually every prayer. You know, it's a cop out. But that's how we parent, right? If our kids come and ask us for something, we say yes, or we say no, or we say not now. Can I have this? Yes, it's time for you to eat, whatever. Can I have that? No, you didn't finish your supper. You can't have the sweets. Can I have ice cream? No, not right now, maybe later. I mean, that's kind of how we parent. And we parent from the love of our hearts for the betterment of the child. That's what we do. And and this is the other thing about prayer that's important to know. Prayer is more, it's not about bending God's hand towards us. It's about bending us into God's will. We see it in this very text as Jesus' own prayer resolves with, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. And my favorite analogy from this, Kent Hughes taught this at a a workshop that I was in years ago at a gospel coalition thing. And he, he said, imagine that you're on a boat. And, and you're on the side of the shores of a lake and there's a big mountain that just comes down into the water. And so you take your anchor rope and you throw it up there around a tree or around a rock on the mountain and you pull on the rope. When you pull on the rope, the boat and the ground do come closer together, correct? But which one moves? It's the boat. We're not pulling the mountain closer to us. 
We're pulling ourselves closer to the shore. And that's really what tends to happen in prayer. It's a place where we relate to God. We know, we realize and are reminded who we are and who he is. And we draw close to him in prayer. This is what happens. And Jesus has a better relationship, obviously, with God the Father than anyone that has ever existed or will ever exist. Not even just when he was walking the earth, but forever he has been in perfect fellowship with God the Father as a member of the Trinity. So if we look at Jesus going into prayer, we should think, this guy probably does it better than us. So what are some things that we can even learn from him? I think there's a few things from this story in particular that are kind of helpful that might just be even just practical things to think about. So for example, just a few things. Number one is this. Jesus had a place. Jesus had a place. It says this was his custom to go to this place. Even Judas knows he's going to be at that place. When Jesus would go to Jerusalem, it would seem that he liked to go to Gethsemane. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, you'll see, I'm hoping we get to go maybe next fall or something like that, but um, you, you'll see Jerusalem is a city sitting on a hill, and then there's the Kidron Valley, and then the Mount of Olives goes up, and the Garden of Gethsemane is an olive grove that's on the side of this mountain. It overlooks the city of Jerusalem. And so from there, even still to this day, though it's developed as well, but to this day, it's a little bit away from the chaotic hustle and bustle that goes on in the actual city of Jerusalem. Even to this day, you can sit on the side of that hill under those olive trees and you can see cars going down the road that goes down through the middle of the valley. There's just people everywhere up on the, the hillside, up on the, the city. And from that place, you get this overlooking vantage. And at this day in particular, this was a place where Jesus could draw away he would have less distractions, less interruptions, a quiet, peaceful place to eliminate distractions and focus on God. So let me ask you, do you have that? Because you should get one of those. Like we have them around here. It'd be like the equivalent of maybe Table Rock becomes your prayer place, or maybe Roxy Ann becomes your prayer place, or whatever the case may be. Um, cemeteries are a great place to have. I know it seems a little bit morbid, but in no place can you understand the reality of your own permanent destiny or your own actual destiny and the reality of who God is than walking around in a cemetery. Plus, it tends to not draw a ton of people. But there's places everywhere, and I would say you should get one whether it be your office, a chair you like, at a window you like, whatever the case may be. So I used to have this one. I was convicted of this as I was studying this. And like, this is mine. You can't have it. But I used to go to this place called the Holy Water. Shocker, Jeff likes to fish, right? But there's this place in the Rogue River that's called the Holy Water from the dam at Lost Creek Lake, and it comes down to like the spillway. And I used to go up there all the time early, earlier in the church's history when it wasn't, didn't seem to be quite as busy as it is now. And I, I would get up there in the mornings and I would go up with my Bible, fly rod, and a thermos of coffee. And I would spend a couple of hours there in the morning, pray, maybe catch a fish or not, and sit. And there's this one area with these rocks where when the sun would come up, it's always right there in the sun. And it was like my spot. That's my spot. Stay out. And I was like, man, I haven't been there in forever. But I look back even now and I'm like, those were special times. Those were really quiet, distraction-free, special times. I was like, I got to go back there. So let me encourage you, if you don't have a place, man, get a place. Make a place. Get, make a nook in your house before everybody else gets up. Whatever the case may be, have a place. Jesus had a place. Second thing is Jesus had partners. Now I know they're failing at the moment. We'll deal with that in a minute. But 
He had partners. He had people that he said, hey, come, come with me. Come, this is what I want you to do. You're going to pray. And so I would encourage you too. Do you have partners? Like, do you have somebody in your life that you can call and say, hey, this is what's going on and, and uh, I, I just need some help. Could you be praying for me? And then when they do that with you, here's the thing, actually do it. You know what I mean, right? Because we say that. Hey, this is going on and I got this and I got this and I got this. And you're like, oh man, that's heavy. I'm going to pray for you. We say that. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray for you. The hard part's remembering to actually pray for someone. So I would, I would start with like, do it right then, but pray for someone. Even look at this example. They're failing Jesus in this moment. Let's not be like that, but have people in your life that you can contact and say, Hey man, I need, I need prayer for something. Could you just keep me in mind and then be that friend to someone else? Jesus had people. Jesus also, number three, Jesus had a prayer posture. It says that Jesus was on his knees in prayer. And to us, that doesn't seem that shocking, but in that culture, you typically prayed standing on your feet. Um, even to this day, if you go to Israel and you go to the Wailing Wall, you will not see too many Jewish people on their knees at the Wailing Wall. They'll be standing there. They might put their hands on the wall. They'll tuck prayers into the cracks. But you don't see people laying on their face or on their knees very often around that area. They typically pray, just tradition, from a standing posture. And here we see Jesus in a moment of heaviness on his knees, on the ground before God, his father. And let me just say, like, posture can matter sometimes. I mean, I, I know, look, we can pray while we're driving. We can pray, pray without ceasing, Paul said, Jeff. I know, I know, I know. But there's a place to get on your knees or on your face before God. Sometimes even the posture of our body can guide our heart into that same form or posture of prayer as well. And so I just want to encourage you guys in this. When's the last time that you were on your knees or on your face before God, just pouring your heart out to him? Maybe it should be today. If Carolina loses, I will be. Anyway, number four, that's it's probably true, but it's just a bad joke. Um, number four, and this is the most important one, okay? Jesus' prayer was personal. It just occurred to me, these are all Ps. I could have set that up way more like a Baptist preacher if I'd have thought about that beforehand. Jesus' prayer was intensely personal. So he prays, Father. He teaches us to pray, Father, when he teaches the Lord's Supper, what does he say? And it, it's interesting, by the way, if you want to look at this on your own time, look at Jesus's prayer and look how he taught the disciples to pray. And you'll see similarities even between them. Even in the, the Lord's prayer, it says, thy will be done. Then here you have Jesus resolving to not my will, but thy will. Like Jesus didn't just teach it. He actually lives it and he actually does this. And in this prayer, he's praying Father. And that is so significant. We're used to it in the Christian church now because we say Heavenly Father, we say all that stuff. But you got to know, listen, they never called God Father. There's only a handful of times in the Old Testament that God is referred to as Father. And every single time it's referring to God as the Father of the nation of Israel. It's never individual and personal. So Jesus is telling people, now listen, this is your Father. And here's why this is super important. The key to prayer is not rhetoric, but relationship. It's not in how fancy your words are. 
It's not how you put them together. It's not how old King James English you sound. Can I just vent for a second? And I'm not trying to guilt you. If this is you, I'm not trying to shame you. I do hope you change, but I'm not pointing anyone out in particular. I cannot stand when someone talks one way and then prays as if they've just channeled Charles Spurgeon or something all of a sudden, and they sound like a completely different guy. Drives me nuts. I'm like, bro, what's up? Man, I'm really struggling right. Jeff, we need to pray for you right now, man. We are going to pray the Lord. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. You ready? Yeah. Oh, Father. And they just get weird or uber repetitive over and over and over or things like that. I'm just like, listen, it's a relationship. Like if my kids came to me like that, it would be, I would probably kick them out. I think, I don't think I could have kids like that living in my house. If they were coming to me, like they want, they want cereal. Oh, father, thou art so majestic above the hills and the mountains. My heart leaps with joy as I come into your presence. Oh, I am so humble and nothing. I must come before you though and ask, might I have the lucky charms? I'd say no on general principle right there. I'd be like, just get out of here with that. Come back like a normal person. We'll talk about it. Listen, when Jesus says, pray our father, he's not saying, hey, make sure you use these magic words because this is how prayer works. He's saying, hey guys, you're praying to your father. And the power of prayer is not in the words or the craftiness or how amazing uh, your linguistic skills are or any of that stuff. The power of prayer is found in the person you're praying to. And he is a loving, caring father that is powerful and able to do anything and who loves you more than anything and also who knows what's best for you more than anyone else. So the power of your prayer is in the fact that you have a relationship with this father. Not in the other things. And you can get that way with stuff. We could even do the other stuff that we did here and go, okay, if my prayer is to be effective, I need to find the perfect place to pray. I need to always be in a certain posture. I need to get really spiritual people to pray for me. And we start crafting all these things and say, now my prayer's ready. And that's not the answer. The best way to become effective or to have a growing prayer life is not to focus on prayer, but to focus on the fact that you have a father who loves you, who cares for you. And that as that relationship with him grows, your prayer will just be natural. And here we see this incredible example where Jesus comes to his father in fear, in anguish, in agony, the text actually says, but through relationship with his loving, caring father. That's the key to prayer. Amen, church? Church, you have a father who loves you, who absolutely loves you. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this thing. There's, there's four different things that are taking place all at the exact same time in this particular text, Okay. We have Jesus' friends blowing it. They're failing him. We have angels that are strengthening him. We have Jesus talking to his father. And we have Jesus' enemy betraying him. They're all happening at the exact same time. So first of all, Jesus' friends are failing him. So he's got his guys. If you look at other gospel accounts, you see he goes back multiple times. Guys, come on, pray. Guys, come on, pray. Guys, come on, pray. And they just, they're falling asleep. They're not coming through. They're failing him. So... We know that people are going to fail us. Amen? You do know that people are going to fail you. Amen? 
All right, wake up. So people are going to fail us. We all know that. But something does happen regarding a lot of people in their perceptions of how the church should operate. And, and there's a lot of people that believe, though, though people will fail us everywhere, people in the church just shouldn't ever, no way. And so when the church fails people, or when people within the church fail people, sometimes it seems to have a bigger significance. It even becomes um, a, a kind of a wall for some people, whether for good reasons or bad, even in them coming to faith. They'll talk about how the hypocrites let them down, or how someone's failed them, or something like that. So let me start with this. If that's you, if you're here, and the church corporately, organizationally, or or more accurately, the people of the church have failed you. If the people of this church have failed you, if I have failed you, let me say, and I mean this sincerely, I, I repent, I'm sorry for that. But he, here's the thing. So many people look at Christians in the church as, hey, they're in the church. They're supposed to be perfect. And that's just not true. The reality is the people in the church are broken people who hopefully were getting better by the power and grace of God, but, but we are still flawed until the day that Jesus returns. The power of the church is that we follow one who is perfect and who will never let you down. And our job is to reflect him the best we can, but to point to him at all times so that the attention's not on us inside the church, but on him. And we are going to let you down. All of us will. By God's grace, I pray that we won't do it as often, and I pray that we will get better, and I pray that when we do let you down, we will repent of that and apologize to you, but it's going to happen. But the reality of Christianity is that we follow one who will never let you down, who will never leave your side, who will always be there when you're struggling, who will always be there to come through for you and act on your best interests, always. And his name is Jesus. And that's what Christianity is about. So if you have been hurt by the church, I apologize for that. But let's talk about that and let's look to the one who heals our hurt. Amen, church? Now, church, be better. I think it's fair for us to say that, right? I mean, to say clearly the example to shoot for is not the apostles who are letting guys down. So if Jesus says, those who are great in my kingdom are servants to all, He's encouraging us to desire to become greater. So we should repent for those mistakes when we've let people down, when we let each other down, and we should strive to try to be better, especially when people are hurting, especially when people are going through hardship. Um, Matthew Henry, great theologian preacher from back in the something, he, um, he had this phrase, um, you know, the birds swallows the birds. He had a phrase called swallow friends. He said, don't be a swallow friend because the swallows are here when the weather's good, but when winter comes, they're gone. Don't be that friend. Be the friend who is quick to come alongside the one who is struggling, who wants to bear one another's burdens up, who wants to come alongside one another in difficulty. Be that friend. Second thing that we see here going on in this text that I find just absolutely fascinating and the timing of this I find fascinating too um, is these, there's an angels that there's an angel here strengthening Jesus in his prayer. Now, as Christians, we believe in the supernatural. We do. We believe in God. We believe in Satan. We believe in demons. We believe in angels. We believe that Satan is a fallen angel who led a rebellion against God in a dimension that we currently cannot see but is real. 
We believe that demons are fallen angels who followed him in that rebellion, and they exist like him to try to swallow us up, to trip us up, to cause us pain, difficulty, to draw us away from God. And then we believe there are also angels. Angels are supernatural beings that are subservient to God, that are pledged in their support to God, and they exist, at least in Scripture, as either ministers or messengers on behalf of God to us. And it's really interesting here. Um, first of all, there, th- we're not going to go super far down this road. Um, if this stuff fascinates you, then this is the last week. This coming Friday night is the workshop. Uh, Gary Brashears from Western Seminary will be here. Spiritual warfare workshops going to take place this Friday night, Saturday morning. There's almost 100 people signed up now. I'm really excited about that. So please get signed up. You don't want to miss it. But we believe in a genuine war that is taking place in that realm that we're even a part of, and that we can actually have an effect in, even though we can't see what's going on. So take a look at this. Ephesians 6.12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's saying to the church in, in Ephesus, he's like, listen, You're at a war and things are difficult, but listen, your battle is way more than just against somebody who doesn't want your church to grow. I mean, behind that, there's an actual spiritual entity. There's a demonic force that is trying to prevent the gospel from spreading, that's trying to divide the church, that's trying to wreck this testimony and ministry of God. There are genuine demonic powers there, and that's what we're at war against. And you go, well, then what are we supposed to do about that? We're at war against powers that are stronger than us that we can't see. Well, in 2 Corinthians, Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We have actual weapons at our disposal that have a real effect on the things that go on in that spiritual dynamic, which to think about is crazy. Now, we're not going to go through the details of what all of them are. That is going to happen at this workshop this weekend. Gary said a lot of what he's doing is going to be very practical about dealing with spiritual warfare and everything. Um, We see in the scripture that the testimony of the saints defeats the enemy. We see that words of faith. We see that the scripture obviously is at play. There's lots of different things that we have at our disposal. But one of them, without question, is prayer. Prayer matters. Prayer has an actual, tangible effect in this spiritual or demonic world that's going on around us. And what's fascinating to me is this. At least three different times that I can think of, in the scriptures, we see examples where someone's prayer during suffering moves the hand of God in such a way that God literally dispatches angels to the person who's praying to encourage, comfort, and strengthen the person while they're praying. We see that in the scriptures. Uh, My favorite's Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel chapter 10, there's this story where Daniel um, is really just wrestling and struggling for three weeks. Three weeks, he's praying and he's anguished. He's He's on the ground, he's struggling. And then all of a sudden, after three weeks, this angel appears and it's this just shocking and powerful and amazing entity in front of him that he can't even comprehend. And the things that the angel tells him are fascinating. The angel actually says to him, Daniel, fear not. Listen, I was sent here the day you started struggling. 
So he's, remember, 21 days he's been struggling and praying. And the angel says, I was dispatched on day one. To which you would think, then where you been, man? It's been a long three weeks. What happened? And the angel literally says, but I was opposed by a demonic force. And he actually says, if it wasn't for the other angel who came to help me, I'd probably still be back there fighting. But now I have come, I was able to break through and I've got news for you. I've got something God wants me to share with you. And he strengthens and encourages and gives this vision to Daniel. That's crazy. From the day Daniel started praying, an angel was literally dispatched to go to him. And this demonic entity that wants to prevent that and wants to keep Daniel in agony is opposing the angel trying to keep him from getting there so that they had to get reinforcements. But he comes through and shares this thing. That's just mind-blowing to me. And you see this, you see this in Matthew chapter 4. As Jesus is in the wilderness and he's hungry and he's fasting and he's praying and the devil is tempting him, you see angels come to strengthen Jesus. And then we see it here in this text. The scripture tells us that as Jesus is there and he's praying through anguish, that this angel comes and strengthens him in that moment. So, so here, when we're struggling with stuff, all those things that we might be tempted to do during difficulty, man, whatever you do, pray. And it's not just prayer. It's prayer. Like it matters. And it may very well be that the prayer that you send up in your moment of suffering is dispatching a literal angel to come and strengthen you in a moment of weakness and in need. That's real. That really happens. And so not just pray. I would say this too. Persevere in that. Because what happens if Daniel stops praying halfway through? Three weeks of prayer, Opposition comes. What happens if Daniel stops? Did the other angel, the reinforcement, come as a result of Daniel's prayer? We have no idea, but I know this. It's worth keeping going. So pray. And also, for others, continue to pray for others. Persevere in prayer. Just know it's not just prayer. It is a powerful weapon that destroys strongholds. That literally means it destroys places where the enemy can launch attacks with safety and with effectiveness. It wipes those places out. So pray. Amen. Then we also have here Jesus talking to his father. So we've talked about the relationship of it, but I want to point one more thing out here as well while we're here. Too often there's this really erroneous view of God. And, and it goes sort of like this, that God the Father is grumpy. He's grumpy, short-tempered, and he doesn't put up with anything. But Jesus is all hugs and coffee cups. Like Jesus is all, I want to throw an arm around you and sit in a warm sunlight. And Jesus loves us and cares for us. So, but God is really grumpy and always wanting to stomp people. So it's a really good thing Jesus came or it wouldn't go really well for us. Let me just say, that is so... It, it's blasphemy against the character of God. It is absolute heresy untrue. And here's why I can say that. Colossians says this of Jesus, says that Jesus is the exact image of God. Um, Jesus himself said when he was teaching the disciples, did, what did he say? He said, if you've seen me, you've seen what? The father. And God is a good father. We just sang it, right? Over and over we said, it's who you are, who you are, it's who you are. Do we believe that? Amen. So, what do you think God's doing in that moment? Here's Jesus 
in agony on his face, blood coming down his face, praying in such agony. What do you think God's doing? I would say this. He's doing the exact same thing. Some would look at this. There's been some who have a really harsher view towards the theology that, that camp out on verses like it pleased the Father to bruise the Son. And they would say, Jesus is pleading and he's in anguish, but God is being distant and removed and going, is what it is. Like he's some cold, arrogant, distant Father. This is Jeff's take. Do with it what you want, but... You ever, you ever have some of those things where you're like, I want to see what the replay looks like in heaven on the big screen one day? You know what I mean? Like that, like I want to see what that was like. This is one of them. Because my guess is, this is maybe the most intimate and tear-filled conversation ever. Ever. Can you imagine what they're saying to one another? This is what we've been talking about. This is what we knew was coming. Dad, it's going to hurt. I know. I've never been separate from you. I've never, I've never had, I've never felt your wrath before. I know, son. I've never felt what guilt or sin, that darkness is like. Is Even the people that I've loved are going to reject me. This is going to hurt. I know. Is there any other way? Son, it's the only way to save them. Okay, if that's what it has to be. But I'm nervous. It's going to hurt. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that would have been like, that conversation? The ultimate loving father ever and the perfect sinless son talking about the anguish and the reality of what was about to take place. I'd imagine that's going to be one of those tear-filled moments in heaven. A powerful moment. So what do we get out of that? I think too many people in some areas of religion are way too cold when it comes to suffering. And they seem to have this approach where you can just slap somebody across the face with a Bible verse and you say, hey, it's cross to bear. Jesus did it. So can you. You better toughen up. Heresy, heresy, heresy. Emotions are given by God. And emotions used rightly reflect the character and nature of God. And I believe even in this right here, we see that Jesus gives us permission to be real about the stuff that we're wrestling with and that when we carry it to a loving, perfect, heavenly father, we can understand with total confidence he gets it and he cares. He's not just sitting back going, well, Jeff, if you were stronger, this wouldn't be an issue. You just need to buck up and do it, man. God cares. He treasures the tears of his saints. He desperately, desperately loves you. I mean, that's why the gospel even exists. He was so moved and not wanting those who he created for a relationship to die that he would send his own son. Of course he cares. Prayer is about relationship. And in the middle of difficulty, you can go to him in your tears. The scriptures even tell us that the spirit will groan for us when we don't know how to pray. And then let me say this too. We should relate in the same way with others. That's why the scriptures say we weep with those who weep. I'll tell you guys, when, when I, um, early on when I became a pastor, the thing that intimidated me the most was hospital visits. 
Because I felt like I'm going into a room where people are struggling and they want some sort of answer and it's on me to have the right answer. That's what I felt. And so I would like look up stuff and try to have the perfect verse and all this kind of stuff. And I, I did that over and over and over and over. And I, I bet never did I walk in that room and actually read the thing that I actually had. Prepared. Usually I walked in the room and was like, I don't even, I don't, I don't even know what to say here. And, and sometimes the best ministry you can do in some of those sittings sometimes is to just sit down, shut up and cry. Honestly. To just be with people in their hurt, to want to bear their burdens with them, to, to validate even the emotions and the difficulty that's coming on, to point them, yes, to a father who can heal that, to call them to prayer or to pray for them when they're too weak to do it, yes, but not calling them to their own strength, calling them to God's strength. Amen? We sometimes in those situations when people you know are hurting, say less, cry more, and everybody will be better off. Amen? Amen. And so here in this scene, this epic, tragic scene, there's one prayer that's emphasized. In verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. This cup, it's, it's the cup of the wrath of God. It's the idea that, Father, I'm going to drink the cup of your wrath for every sin that's ever been committed. I, I'm about to experience all of this. And if there's any other way, please don't let me do it. Now, in that moment, as Jesus is praying, Satan is on the prowl. Um, I was tempted to download this scene, but I was worried it might be too intense if there's little kids in here or something. I probably should have done it, but oh well. Um, some of you have seen that movie, The Passion of the Christ, correct? The best scene in that movie by miles is the scene of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You can Google it and just watch just that scene on YouTube. I highly encourage you to do it. It's a powerful scene. And in that scene, Jesus comes into the garden and he, he's weeping and he's praying and there's the blood and the anguish and Satan is there whispering to him. Satan in that movie, creepiest character in the history of cinema bar none. Amen? So Satan's there. There's a snake crawling around. And, and what's Satan saying in that moment? He's saying, do you really think that the suffering of one man can save all of them? Do you really think they're worth it? Like he's literally there tempting Jesus to do what? To come out of the suffering and not go through it. Now, this is powerful. Think about this. Jesus says to the disciples as they come to the hill, he says, come and pray. But he gives them specific, pray, why? That you not be or enter into temptation. Okay, well, what kind of temptation? Just in general? Like, guys, I'm going to go over here and pray about the cross. You pray that um, lust not get you. Or you pray that pride not get you. Or, or just in general, pray for your own holiness and ability to resist temptation just in general. I'll be over here praying. Is that what it is? No. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. When suffering comes, Satan is close. When suffering comes, Satan is close. Take a look at what Peter says in 1 Peter 5. And now think about this in light of what Jesus is even telling his disciples in this moment, right? Be sober-minded, be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What's he saying here? He's saying, when you are going through difficulty and suffering, as the church that Peter was writing to was going to do, he said, listen, Satan's going to be there on the prowl, and he's going to be whispering into your ear the exact same sorts of things. Things like, if God really loves you, would he leave you in this? Is God really listening to your prayers? Who are you even praying to anyway? You've been praying for 20 days, Daniel. Why would you pray today? He's not listening. Satan is constantly at war against us. And suffering in particular is one of those mechanisms where Satan really speaks loudly and wants to draw people away. It's also one of the reasons that testimonies of people who have been faithful through suffering become really powerful. And this is a real key in Scripture regarding spiritual warfare. You see it Israel in the wilderness when they don't have the food they want. You see um, Job's story. Jesus in the wilderness. Over and over and over we see when the people of God are in a place of discomfort or agony, stress, lacking, suffering, something like that, Satan is there going, it doesn't have to be like this. You can come out. And in that moment, we have a choice. Will we say, nevertheless, not what I want, but what he wants, as Jesus resolves to? Or will we say, you know, that's right. This faith stuff's not working anyway. Why do this? Church, persevere in pray. And Jesus, God, can you, can you remove us? Is there any other way? And the answer from God is, this is the only way. And Jesus resolves, nevertheless, not my will, but thine. And from that moment on, it's set. In the video, in that, that scene, and I, I hate to keep going back to a movie, but it's such a great representation. You know, as, as even in Genesis, it says that, that this seed is going to come and, and that serpent's going to bruise the heel of the one who will come through Eve, but that son will crush the head of the serpent. And in that scene, you see, Jesus is there and he's struggling and he's praying and Satan is right there at his ear, whispering, whispering. And you see Jesus, it's like as if he's gaining this strength and he stands up, looks over at Satan as the snake is right there and boom, crushes the head of the snake and walks head first right into the kind of suffering we can't even imagine. He goes through suffering. He won't even let his boys fight back. Like it... I love how the gospels, I was reading the different gospel accounts and sometimes it's really funny. Like every gospel, it's like someone had a sword, someone had a sword, someone had a sword. Gospel of John, it was Peter. <laughs> it's like it totally rats him out. It was Peter. And you know, someone there's like, how, who gave Peter a sword? But, um, but here's these guys that are wanting to fight and Jesus has this opportunity. Are you going to fight and try to avoid it and push it back? And he's like, no, head first into this. He's going to heal this kid. He's all of this. No, I'm going in. Even on the cross, when Jesus is offered something to deaden the pain, he refuses it because he'll drink every drop of that cup. He will feel every ounce of that pain so that there is nothing. There's no sin that will be left unatoned for. There's no pain you've been through that he won't be able to relate to. There is nothing. He took it all with no temptation or no willingness to get out of the suffering at all. He willingly went headfirst into suffering we cannot imagine 
because he desperately loves you and wants to save you that you might be in his family for eternity. Amen? It's powerful. Now, in this story, as is the world, all of humanity can be broken down to one of two people. Those who are covered by Jesus Christ and that sacrifice or his straight up enemies, his enemies. You go, I'm not an enemy. I'm middle ground. I'm still trying to figure it out. But the Bible doesn't give that leeway. The book of Romans tells us that we are enemies of God until the day that we are saved by the grace of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And it makes sense. And I I know that some would say, well, that's just, no, you're back to the grumpy God analogy. But no, think about this. God is a perfect, loving father. And he allows his perfect, sinless son to drink every drop of that cup of your sin for you to reject it. It's his son. What do you think his reaction would be? And my fear is that some of you are in danger. Grave, grave danger. Because you're not covered by the sacrifice of Jesus. You have not turned from your sin. You've not repented. You've not considered him. You've, you've not given your heart to him. You've not given it any thought. Or maybe you're still giving it thought, but you're not there. But th- this is what I need you to know. The scripture says you are either in Christ or you will be an object of the wrath of God when he pours out his wrath on a Jesus-rejecting world. And you don't know how long you have to rectify that. And so here's what I want to tell you. Don't wait till we get to the resurrection. At our pace, who knows if we'll actually get there by Easter. Don't do that. Here's how it's going to go. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mock trial. He's going to be accused of things he didn't do. He's going to go to the cross. And the sins that you and I committed are going to be placed upon his shoulders. And he's going to die. And then he's going to raise again. He's going to defeat sin and death. He's going to ascend into heaven. And to this day, there's another conflict that's still going on in heaven. Satan is called the accuser. And in heaven, Satan comes before God and says, Did you see that guy? God, did you see what he did? He can't be yours. You would claim him? That hypocrite? But Jesus is called our defender. And Jesus says, I've covered it. I've dealt with it. I've done it. That sin has been paid for. God, I faithfully drank the entire cup. I did it all. He's forgiven. It's one or the other. But to reject Jesus, please know this, means that on that day, you stand before God on your own merit with the son that died for your sin that you're rejecting right there. What do you think God will do? Hebrews says, for those who reject Jesus, there remains no other sacrifice for sin. That's all there is. You reject Jesus or you are on your own. But the heart you need to hear is this. He is a loving God who went through all of this to save you. 
He is not a vengeful God stepping back waiting to crush you. What more could he do to prove his love for you than what he did? So I'm begging you, if you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, repent, turn to Jesus, and do it now while there's still time. Today is the day into salvation. Amen? So come talk to me. Grab somebody in here. Come talk to us. But go before God. Fall on your face. Fall on your knees before a loving Heavenly Father that loves you so much that He would endure such suffering on your behalf. Amen, church? Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you so much. As we see this, we're just in awe at what you did on our behalf. And I just pray, God, that you would save those who are not yet yours. That there would not be one hard heart in this room. Lord, may every single person in this room claim the name of Jesus, turn from our own self-righteousness and put our faith in you. Lord, also in this room, there are those who are suffering and struggling with all sorts of difficulties, financial, health, all sorts of things. Thank you for this example and the freedom that you've given us, that we can bring our concerns and cast them before you, knowing that you care for us. This very story proves it, that we can bring our difficulties before you, knowing that you love us. And so I pray, God, for those that are struggling. May you strengthen them. May you send angels even at this moment to strengthen those who need it. And I pray, God, that you would help us to bear one another's burden, to pray for one another, to, to be uh, the kind of friend that, that's needed in this room, God. And I pray that we would carry that testimony outside the walls of this room to others who need it, that they might know no matter where they are, all who reject Christ, that they might know that an avenue has been made by which they can have everlasting life. Lord, may we bring that truth to our friends and family. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. I love you guys. Don't forget, sign up for that workshop Friday night. I think it's at like 5.30 or 6 o'clock, something like that. Be there. I love you guys. Have a great, great week.